Welcome to the 25th episode of the Facilitator M podcast. This podcast has been created to host discussions of relevance to Global Partner M's in phase four and five fields. My name is Christy Van Steenberg, Global Partner Southeast Regional Mobilizer. I will be your host for the time we'll be spending together. Today, we will be talking with Elizabeth Drury, founder of Vibrancy Intercultural. Elizabeth is an ordained Wesleyan minister who teaches and coaches to help intercultural efforts be successful and satisfying, both at home and abroad. Today, we are talking with her about cultural bias. Elizabeth, you've been with us before. Welcome back to the Facilitator M podcast. We're super excited to have you back. And um, But we have some new listeners. We have some listeners who maybe didn't tune in to the last time you shared with us. So I would love for you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got connected with Global Partners, just to refresh our memories. Thank you, Christy. It's great to be here. And I have known GP for a long time. I was it was a very long time ago that I served for three months when a family that was working for GP came home and I had lived in that culture and spoke the language. So I went just, just to help out at that time. And I think that short experience solidified for me that this intercultural work was what I, what I really wanted to do and what I felt the Lord wanted me to do. And um, so after that, my husband and I served with another organization and uh, we, it was similar to GP, but we worked in the local culture and that was a great experience. And I oversaw the region for a few years and then we had kids and life changed in a lot of ways. And so we shifted our focus um, in the United States to serving in urban multi-ethnic churches. Yeah. And um, I studied at the School of Intercultural Studies at Biola University. And that's a very um, sort of GP type uh, program. And um, just really, I've, I, yeah, I've had some um, GP students in Wesley Seminary courses about uh, intercultural work and have really enjoyed getting to know them. So thank wow. you. That's super, Super cool how the Lord kind of knits our stories together in different ways. And I just know that missionaries, when they're on their um, partnership development time, it's it's a blessing to know there's somebody back kind of holding down the fort. So thanks for doing that and really positioning yourself to hear from the Lord um, for your own calling. So thanks for being obedient to that. Well, today, as we talk about cultural bias, I know, and you and I talked before we got on just about how many different directions this can go. And so, you know, for our time today, we can just make it smaller or so that it doesn't have to feel so big. Um, But I think we should start off with just what is cultural bias? And yeah. Yeah. Cultural bias. Well, um, just let's break it down in pieces, the cultural part and the bias part. Uh, it's we a lot of times you will hear people say that they have overcome their bias or whatever. Um, well, the Lord in his wisdom created us um, in a way that we would be shaped by the unique environments that we're born into. And so doesn't mean that we're determined that we will forever have to repeat those sort of same patterns, 
but we are born into specific environments. And if you think about the diversity of environments around the globe, you know that let's just say there are places that maybe fishing is is uh, is what they live on. And maybe there are other places where raising mountain goats in cold climates, maybe that's their way of life. And you can imagine how those two places will develop very different ways of interacting with the world around them. And it's not just how they live uh, and eat, it affects everything. Their languages develop around those things and the environment that they face. Their, even their religious practices will often develop around those things. You think about people who are like in a fishing place, maybe with there are lots of storms and you know, all through history, we know cultures like that they develop religious beliefs about about the you know what makes the water roil up like it does and all that. So um, we think about culture in layers, and everybody has seen that cultural iceberg where you can you can see some things at the top, but most of the things are way down deep that you can't even see. But I think it's helpful to think about behaviors, beliefs values and perceptions. This is kind of going to get into the bias part. So our beliefs, our, our behaviors and our beliefs, we can talk about those pretty easily. And, and we might not, you know, you know that we maybe don't always understand why we do certain things, why our behaviors are like they are, but we can, we can, we can observe them. We can talk about them. Yeah. Um, language, if you think of language as kind of like behavior, we talk about what words mean. We can like slice it and dice it. When you get into beliefs, you can talk about what you believe, but you've studied theology, Christy, and you know that sometimes it's even difficult to put into words exactly what we believe. Right. And you think about these layers getting deeper and deeper, and you kind of get down into values. And values are largely not things that we're conscious of, we're conscious of values that we want to have. And we work to articulate the values that are ideal for us. And if a church has its say 50th anniversary celebration, they will put in their brochure what their church values are. You know, we value right. openness and all this, but maybe really, if you were to look back into the history of the church, maybe not even the distant history, you would see that what that church really valued was for Aunt Mabel to call the shots and to not ever have conflict and disagreement um, or something like that. Or let's just, right. we, we just wanna have our own little people and not really be open to others. I don't know, but our values are not always what we will say that they are. And it takes usually conflict or pain um, or, or collision with other values to even recognize them. And below that is the level of perception. And perception is the kind of thing we may never even think about we the way that we perceive the world is so deeply ingrained in us that we might never even notice that we we perceive things that way hmm. and so um now when we're so for example if somebody's from a highly industrialized society that's where they're born um they will grow up in a world where everything is neatly categorized you can't be this and that at the same time um We've got, we know what things are made of and those things are very different. We've got plastics, we've got stone, we've got wood. It's all very different. Um, but maybe someone from um, an, an, a rural or agrarian society, they will grow up with this idea that um, 
it's not even an idea. It's just a, a way of even looking at the world, not even consciously, that things are all really interrelated and it's all a substance, maybe that everything comes from dirt and everything returns to dirt. And it's this um, sort of essence that permeates everything. And if, if you have that viewpoint, then um, think, you know, how in the one, the industrialized society, you things can't be this and that at the same time. Well, in another kind of perception, you know, contradiction isn't really a problem because everything is kind of all of the same. So you might never even notice that, but all of those deep perceptions you're not even aware of will affect how you live your life. It'll go all the way through values, beliefs, and behaviors. It'll be reflected in the language and the religion and everything. So bias is the just a reflection of the reality that we're predisposed to live consistently with the way we with the way we've been raised as much as we can be um i mean some of that we're aware of and sometimes you know people depart from what they've been raised with but um we are predisposed to to live the way that we were sort of trained overtly or not overtly to live so um that would be cultural bias we're creatures of culture it's like you've heard the adage if you want to know what culture is, don't ask a fish. Um, because, I mean, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish because the fish is in the water all the time and mm-hmm. isn't going to tell you about it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's what you wanted to know, but. Wow, that's loaded with a lot of information, a lot of really good stuff. I think um, I, I just was picturing your iceberg and <clears throat> and even as we went down, so underneath the water, the values and the perception. And I was actually thinking about a conversation I had with um, my young guy uh, in in Panama, actually, who was sharing with me some of those things that were how he perceived things and wondering if he, he, he was trying to figure out if he was biased in what he perceived. And I, you know, that's kind of a deeper level of thinking. So, wow. Yeah. That was super cool. So, I mean, I'm sure that you've seen cultural bias and how it plays out in the lives of individual people and within even, I guess, if we think about culture just in um, in people groups, but we could probably also talk about cultures and organizations and cultures in, um, in church life. But so as you say, are there any examples that maybe you could share that stick out like right away um, with us about just a specific cultural bias that you have experienced or that you watched happen? Okay. So let me let me just interject something here. Yeah, for sure. This idea of bias has sort of been weaponized, like it's a sin or sure. or it's a sign of um you're wrong all the time, or you're selfish all the time, or you, you know, and and the fact is that we have all experienced cultural bias. We've experienced, it's, um, it's often conflated with intolerance or discrimination, right. but not. Um, we all have bias. We just do. It's, it's like, like, again, that just, we are born into a perception of how things are. And that is what seems normal. It's not even that we think that's right. And everything else is wrong. It's more like we think this is normal and everything else is crazy. And so, um, 
when I think about examples of, of cultural bias, the, the times that are most poignant to me, of course, are the painful times. And I think, um, I, boy, I could tell you many examples, but so I, I have some friends, a lot of very close friends that, um, I spent a lot of time with, um, when I was a teenager in their home and school in another country. And so they have a very direct way of communicating and they, especially their negative opinions. Oh. And so, um, you know, they, they told me in no uncertain terms what they thought about my wardrobe choices or hairstyle or whatever. Oh, and as I grew older and then got married and had kids, uh, they have been very liberal in their criticisms of my husband and my kids. And, and so it, even though I was studying culture, I'd had a lot of time with them. I knew them very well. I still had a struggle when I would think about them and I would kind of dread visiting with them because I knew I was going to get skewered over things that were really <laughs> not business. Sure. And so I, the, the fact is my bias and here's how I guess I'm illustrating it this way, just to show that it's not, it's really inaccurate to think of cultural bias as, as a sin. Okay. Or it, it, it just is. Okay, now we can respond to it in simple ways, of course. Um, and when people are like, say, uh, uh, judgmental or discriminatory or something toward other people, whatever, of course, it can be sinful. But if you think about this, here I am, the person trying to be loving. And every time I interact with these people, I'm getting just criticized like crazy. And it hurt my feelings. And I finally one day realized, despite all the study about culture, I was like, wait a minute, this is a communication thing. And my bias was toward not, like my way of doing things is not telling people those kinds of things. And in the culture that I grew up in, we don't criticize people's outfits or hairdos or how much weight they've gained or not. We just, we don't do that. And that to me seemed normal and right. And that is an aspect of bias. So when I think about the, the moments, uh, the aha moments that have been really satisfying for me, and that's why I said in the ministry that I do now, I want, I want people and organizations to succeed interculturally, but also a part of success is, is satisfaction in that. And so I think understanding like our, our biases again, it's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Understanding those things sometimes will really take away the sting of something that has been hurting someone. I, I had a student who said, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago. And um, he was like, I can think of specific examples where, where I had a conflict and I, I just thought they were not like, according to my framework, that was not a normal way to act. And so they must have really disliked me or they must have really been angry to react that way. So, mm -hmm. yes, I, I hope that is helpful. But I think you could look at any like so I, I mentioned we were part of 
urban multi-ethnic churches here in the U.S., any board meeting or any effort to do a ministry activity together, um, even a potluck dinner after church, can become a debacle and a catastrophe because these are people filled with the Holy Spirit that they're trying to do a project together, but the other people do something or fail to do something that these people don't realize that that is a cultural thing. It's not just that they are whack and we are normal, but that is bias plays out like that. It's a very sneaky, it's a sneaky little thing, but we a sneaky big thing that we all have to deal with all the time. Yeah. It's, it's making me think of lots of different things that either we've been through or that we've seen happen. And well, so obviously some of these things and you shared your own example of um, people being a little bit, what we would say critical of appearance type things. Um, like, so how do we overcome that? What do we do to help ourselves, but also to work together um, with the people that that conflict is coming up with? All right. Well, let me, that's, those are great questions. Um, one, uh, it's complicated about, and I love how you said that just now, because it's complicated. Somebody, sometimes people will say, so can we overcome bias? And um, it's like, well, yes and no. We can do things so that it doesn't, uh, we can we can do things to limit its impact and to have more knowledge of what's happening. Like, it's like having your eyes wide open, um, it, uh, but we cannot really get rid of it. You know, you learn. So like I have poor eyesight. Um, when I was a little kid, when I was two years old, I had glasses that were like this big. I still have them. Um, and so I admitted, my, you know, like, I didn't, but, you know, my parents and doctors and everybody acknowledged she has an eyesight problem. And so it's like her perception of the world is limited. Right. So that has not changed throughout my life. So my eyesight hasn't gotten worse or better throughout my life. Um, but, and and so I just have to know it's a reality. And if I try to do things, um, pretending that I'm going to see like everybody else, it's not going to go well. And so I have to acknowledge that, but I have glasses. I know I have my, always have my sunglasses handy and I don't leave the house without them. If I'm going to be outside, I know where to sit in a room so that I can see better. If I'm going to speak, I know how to manage my notes and all that stuff, assuming and knowing that I'm not going to be able to see well. And so it's the same with cultural bias. It is there. It's not going away, but we can do some things. And so um, the first thing is admitting that we have it. And it has, it has become a difficult, it's, it's, it's really surprising lately in our culture that it has become such um, a thorn for people. It seems like they, they don't like to hear that we have bias that we can't, like totally get rid of. And that's because they think that bias 
is the same as meanness or something. It could be. Um, so we kind of have to admit it because when we admit it, then we have the humility, the intercultural humility and the intellectual humility to say, I am not, I have limited perception, just like me and my eyesight. I have limited perception. I don't fully understand what's going on. And so I'm going to need to, uh, I'm, I'm going to need to correct for that. And so if, if people are not going to admit it, and it happens all the time. And any of you workers who have had short-termers, you know, I mean, they, they've been on three eight-day trips and they know everything. Um, and they, I mean, bless their hearts. <laughs> okay. But we have to say <laughs> they know everything and they're not biased or people who say, I read scripture with zero bias. That's just not realistic. It's not realistic. And, um, uh, the word of God speaks to every culture everywhere and critiques every culture. That is absolutely true. Um, we still see through a glass dimly. And, um, and so it's a process. Okay. So we have bias. We have to admit that and, and do what we need to do to try to um, anticipate the blind spots. Right. So the second thing is, um, experience. So these short-termers that I just talked about, short-term work is valuable um, when it also comes with reflection, um, which will be the third point here, but it's the exposure to something different that wakes you up to something deep in you that you never noticed before. And often it comes out in, in, overwhelming feelings of inadequacy, um, anger, uh, being very emotional, um, and, and condescension, you know, and that feeling of, it's just interesting. Those people who are doing things in such a backwards way from someone's perception, right? Then often that issue, that's like, that's a collision between two different paradigms and that can be looked at to learn more. So um, it's the fish out of water analogy. That fish you, that fish can't tell you about water until it's gasping and flopping around on the dock. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have this thing it's always had. So I'll give you a personal example. We were for three years part of a different denomination. And um, we noticed in that denomination that uh, they seemed very, uh, I would say, to us at the time, our first reaction was that they were very toward their leaders. They would talk back to their leaders in meetings. They would challenge their leaders. The, the, I was in a meeting one time where a pastor of a church said to the board, um, uh, I, I think it's important. We, we need to be developing volunteers. Now that to me, the very normal and basic statement um, but the church board jumped all over that. And they were like, what do you mean by we? What do you mean by we? And somebody else was like, what do you mean by develop? And then somebody else was like, well, I guess I just want to know who you're talking about when you say volunteers. I mean, it was just like, oh my. we went to their general conference. They were, they would stand up from the floor and just argue. So 
we thought that that seemed very disrespectful. And so it took us some time to analyze that. But what that, that kind of, it was a negative reaction we had, sure. but it made us stop and notice, wait a second, because in our tribe, we tend to be deferential to leaders. And then I started noticing when we were back in our own tribe, I started noticing, wait a second, everybody gets like honorifics or these titles, like when they're, if you're addressing someone from the floor at conference or something, you're going to use their most elaborate, you know, title or whatever. And we just, so we tend to be deferential toward leaders. And that's like a fish out of water suddenly notices the water it came from. So experience is really important. But the third thing is reflection. And so even in um, learning theory, it's uh, experience is something that is seen as valuable and recognized as valuable, but only with quality reflection. And mm -hmm. so that is where a person asks, like, why something is the case. So my husband and I were... Um, I mentioned that we served with another organization for a while. One question we had early on was why they carried flowers upside down. We would get on the Metro and um, we would see all these people with their scarves tied under their chin and they've got their, their bundles of flowers upside down. So we watched this for months and months and we, we talked to each other about, wow, like, why do they do that? And we, this is a behavior that we noticed. Sure. And, were right to ask why they did it. It's good to be curious. Um, but we should have asked locals that we had developed good relationships with. We should have just asked them. We ultimately did because we were thinking, oh, it's like they came from a post, like they used to be in a totalitarian oppressive situation. And, you know, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So they don't want their flowers like... Mm -hmm want to be a show off on the metro um but really what it was is that they did not they wanted gravity to work in favor of those blooms um staying kind of closed and intact before mm. home. <laughs> and so when they got to the door they would turn the flowers up and they give them the beautiful flowers and they're all nice and stuck to you so um, but to keep asking why so often people will get a surface level answer for why, or maybe they'll, if they're starting, if you just imagine this pyramid, they will get an answer for something up here, but then they really won't continue asking why. And so, um, for example, in the United States, if you think about churches that deliberately have different colored chairs in their sanctuaries, okay? You, you go into a church like that and you go, huh, so why do they have different colored chairs in here? And then um, somebody will say, oh, well, it's so that the church looks more full, like it has more people in it. And then you can just stop at that and go, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's why. But if you keep asking, you know, so why is it important for it to look like there are more people here? And then, I don't know, this can get into deeper conversations. Well, we want it to look like it's popular. We want it to look like this is the place to be. And it's like, well, yeah. now why? So to develop the discipline of continually asking why, 
why are and and ask when it gets uncomfortable and especially ask when you think you already have answered and landed at an answer and it's not a very flattering answer now sometimes it's true sometimes a, an unflattering answer is the truth sometimes what you see is reflective of dysfunction or sin or selfishness or or truly inaccurate thinking but I've found that most of the time, like if I am really trying to look at people in an honorable, an honoring, full way, and I'm really trying to understand another cultural perspective, breaking through my, because my bias will let me stop at that negative answer. It really will. It'll, you know, especially, I mean, look at our news cycle here in the United States right now. Instead of asking deeper whys about things, we stop at, the 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 answer that seems to like affirm our negative view of another side but honestly you know that when you are overseas and you're feeling the pressure and you're far from home and it's been one of those weeks that's the place you're comfortable stopping you're comfortable to just stop at that negative view sometimes so to keep asking why okay the fourth thing is um trust so relationships of trust, and I know people have said this many times, and I know everybody, I mean, I know we believe this, um, we, we aspire to build relationships of trust, but those are the, the forums for working out what, you know, because like I was just saying, sometimes that, that the answer really is negative. Sometimes it really is sin or dysfunction. Honestly, you you don't really know that you don't know whether there's a more honorable answer or if that's really it unless you have relationships of trust with people who can from the heart truthfully uh, give you their um, perspective and like one cultural informant is not always going i mean one cultural informant is one person who cannot explain their entire culture to you but um those relationships of trust are wonderful places for, for working that stuff out and just being really honest about it. So um, now for all my students, I, I suggest they get a culture coach. And I try to find culture coaches for people who have needs in various places. Um, because a, a culture coach is somebody that you can kind of, especially if you can, so for my students, for example, they are their assignment is to meet with the culture coach, um, you know, on a regular basis throughout the course, and then I encourage them to keep that up, like just continue to have coffee with this person and have this relationship where you can say, "Hey, this weird thing happened to me the other day in the metro with the flowers." Now, what does that? Mean? I mean, so that you can have this person. But um, now, let me say one more thing about trust before I move on, and that is that there's this idea among missiologists about a world hermen world hermeneutical community. And I love that because if you, you think about the places around the world where you serve, you think about instances where you really don't know if this thing that you're looking at is just cultural or if it reflects something really twisted. Sometimes you don't know. I had a pastor recently in the United States who was like, I'm having a breakdown at my church, a, a serious meltdown, because I've got a Spanish speaking pastor 
who is insisting that all the women wear a head covering and that has just banished one woman because she got a haircut. And he was like, can you help me? Because I do not think that that's biblical, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be the guy who comes down and like gives them like, you know, this is the mm-hmm. answer. And so, um, so if you develop relationships of trust with people, not just the people that you work with regularly, it, it's a huge blessing if you have people outside your regular circle. I mean, you should have relationships of trust with the people that you work with. But if you can also have a cultural informant or cultural coach who can talk to you outside of those circles um, so that you can. And so a world hermeneutical community will take uh, scripture together and wrestle through scripture together um, and talk about experience and talk about culture and all of those things. And in humility and in listening to one another, we'll work this out together. And the, the, the process of working through scripture to come to that answer is really valuable in and of itself. So um, the fifth thing, and this is the last one. I mean, there are other things, but I'm giving you five here because this last one is about making rules. Um, now, you there has been a lot of talk in the U.S. in the last few years about structural this and that and making structural changes and systemic problems and changes. And those words, people seem to kind of have an allergic reaction to them. Again, a lot of this language gets weaponized when it really shouldn't. Because if there are, but the thing about cultural bias is that culture people, I'm not talking about political talking heads, even though they talk about this, not in a constructive way, but culture people acknowledge that because you can't really escape your bias, one of the safeguards is to, is to make some rules. So for example, in your organization, make a rule that says, okay, if we want to limit the impact of our bias, and if we, and really it's to anticipate the areas where, where we're not going to see something like, it's sort of like anticipating your blind spots. And that's like a really, that sounds like an impossible thing to do, but make a rule, for instance, that your decision-making team in your organization or the effort that you're involved in is going to be deliberate. I mean, it's going to be deliberately diverse. So um, I've been part of an organization that has, let's call them groups A, B, and C, let's just say, okay? Group A had known each other forever. And so group A always made the decisions just because they were buddies with each other they would get together all the time and and they had a really good rhythm together of making decisions for the organization. And, and group B was the kind of the next most numerous group. Group B said, "You, why did you make this decision that now offended all of our people? And these are culturally different groups. Right. And then group A says, well, we didn't know if that offended your people. And they're like, well, you never include us in anything. And so- Group A continued to make, they said, okay, okay, well, we will try to include you next time. So we'll, next time we come up with an idea, we'll ask you what you think about it. 
Well, group B just got angrier and angrier. And so if that organization, and ultimately they did actually make this decision, and if they would have done it sooner, it would have saved a lot of heartache. They decided, okay, instead of planning our you know, various events through this one group, we're going to make a change and we're going to always have, you know, people come and go. They cycle off of these various committees and all that stuff. We will always have diverse representation from these different cultural groups on this committee. Not that they're getting the information secondhand, not that we're coming up with all the ideas and then later ask their opinion about it. No, we're going to have a rule that they're going to be included in the decision-making from the start. And it's not a matter of, so sometimes the reaction is, why should we have a numbers game? Why should we have to, this is not like, um, I don't know, uh, some quotas or whatever. It's like, no, actually, if you want to have a bigger perspective than what just comes naturally to you, you have to build it into the processes that you follow. So a, a church might say, I know a pastor, who says, if I come in the door and the worship team on the stage that's practicing up there for the for the service is not representative of the people who attend this church and come in from the community, then there's going to be a problem right there on Sunday morning. And so the worship leader knows, like, you know, weeks in advance, like, oh, on that Sunday, so-and-so is going to be absent. I've got to get somebody else there. And they they do that so that they're Number one, their musical style and the choices that they make are are not just going to be limited to their own perspective, but also so that when somebody walks in, they they their immediate impression is, yeah, okay, this is a place where I would be, I could, I'm not going to stick out, you know, uh, like right. one or something. So that's great. Anyway, I think those those are just five ways that that you come to recognize your blind spots. Um, but if you go all the way back to the very first one about admitting bias, that's usually, I'm sorry to say, it is usually the breakdown because mm -hmm. people don't want to admit that they have bias. Um, but it is just like how we are. So. Well, that's great. I love that you gave us some specific things to think through um, the admit bias um, different experiences help us to um, look at our biases a little bit better, our reflection of <clears throat> different situations that happen and the trust factor. And then just the making, you said making rules, but kind of deciding that we're going to be a little bit more inclusive of um, different cultural things. I think that's super exciting. And I just love that you gave us those um, tidbits to hold on to as we think about that iceberg that you mentioned at the beginning, because um, really there's so much stuff in cultural bias that is unseen, probably unseen, you know, you mentioned this, but unseen in our own lives. We don't even realize how biased we can be. So I just want to say thanks, Elizabeth, for your time today. Thanks for sharing with us and giving us lots of stories to process that, that are real life things. Um, and I'm sure that as we listened, we were able to say, oh, yeah, that 
and, and we can process through our individual stories a little bit better. So thanks so much for sharing today. And, and for our listeners, thanks for joining us today and listening with us. We just ask that you continue to process your own cultural bias and those things that maybe stand out to you. Ask why, and then ask why again and again. And so I think, you know, ultimately we can do that with our relationship with Jesus as well. And so thanks again for joining Facilitator and Podcast today. Thank you.